Welcome to Real Wealth, Real Health, the show that empowers you with insights, information, and inspiration to achieve your version of financial wellness. Learn how to balance living a full life today with planning for the future. This podcast is brought to you by Alpha Investing, a real estate-centric private capital network that provides exclusive investment opportunities to its members. And now, here are your hosts, Ada Piedrico and Daniel Coca. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Real Wealth, Real Health. We are speaking with Alpha Investing Board member Monique Lachey. Monique is the Executive Vice President of GHC Housing Partners, one of the nation's premier affordable housing owners and operators. Prior to GHC, Monique served as the Chief Executive Officer of a Community of Friends, a Los Angeles-based nonprofit development organization. Monique takes us through her inspirational journey to becoming an established real estate and nonprofit executive and affordable housing developer. Her successful career has provided her with unparalleled knowledge of the intricacies of subsidized housing in the U.S. We get into the technicalities and details about the way affordable housing works, including tax credits and vouchers, in the first part of our conversation. The latter part of our conversation pivots into the social impact of affordable housing development. Monique's experience directly reveals for us the deeper systemic imbalances in society, many of which are surfacing today and demanding everyone's attention. Leaders like Monique and her partners at GHC strive to make an impact on the lives of those for whom they develop safe housing options beyond the housing itself. Initiatives like scholarships and programs to empower the underprivileged are at the heart of this work. We hope this poignant tale of professional growth through an empathetic perspective of a professional developer inspires more of us to be motivated to affect change in our communities. Hi, Monique. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Hi, Adapia. Nice to meet you. Yes. <laughs> it's nice to see you. You're back in your office. Right. I well, no, I'm in my home office today. So oh. our office is is two days per week per department. So my days are Wednesday and Thursday in the office. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. Well, your home office looks like a proper office because I thought it was your I thought it was your work office. So so listen, I just realized I need to to stop this ringing because I have, yeah I okay. I need to let's start over. <laughs> Cool. Well, hi, Monique. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. You're welcome. Nice to see you. Thanks for, yes. thanks for having me. Yes, it's, uh, it's, it's, really, it's really great to have you on the podcast today. You are an esteemed and valued member of Alpha Investing's board, and you also have over 20 years of experience in real estate, finance, and development with such a deep expertise in affordable housing. So we're really looking forward to diving into everything that you've seen and everything that you know <laughs> comes to that. And, but let's, you know, to start, maybe it's a, uh, can you tell us a little bit about how you got uh, connected to Alpha Investing and, you know, became a board member? Sure. Well, as you, as you might know, I, I got my MBA at UCLA many, many years ago. 
And I met Fark Tari at an Anderson event. And I can't, I can't remember what event. I think it was African-American alumni event four, four years, three or four years ago. And we connected, we were introduced uh, by Dr. Osborne, who's sadly the, still the only black professor on the faculty at the business school. And, and also, sadly, I was, I was glad to meet Park, but sad to say that he is the second person, black person, that's been at the business school that I've met who was also interested in, year, in real estate over a 30-year period. So anyway... We connected, and I uh, was happy to uh, to meet him and hear about what he was doing. Wow. Well, I mean, first of all, those statistics. I mean, this now this is such a big topic. But on a, on another note, for somebody who never leaves his house, Fark sure sure got around back in the day to get Alpha Investing started. So I try to tell him we need him to to just like show his face a little bit more because you know, as you know, he's just just engages so well and really brings that level of trust, which is, as you know, is so important in anything in, in real estate. So it's, it's, it's on my, my list to try to get him out there more as a, also a really important role model, but like regardless. Oh, good. Oh, good. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll back you up on that. And that after, so after our talk today, we should, we should talk about something else. I have an idea. I love ideas. Okay. (laughs) That sounds great. Well, let's dive in. Um, Let's dive into affordable housing. You've been in this sector for a really long time. And I was, you know, on your, on your bio, you've been doing nonprofit work. I mean, for, is that your whole career that you've been doing nonprofit work? Well, here's the, no, no. In fact, so let me, let me step back again. So after I came to UCLA, actually, I specifically chose to apply to business schools who had a real estate tract. And I, and I won't go into my ancient career history, but just suffice it to say that I didn't, I was in a tech industry, I was in the computer industry. It was a whole different industry than it is now, but it wasn't, it wasn't uh, something that I saw myself climbing to the top of the, the corporation, the major corporation I was at at the time. And I started thinking about what, you know, careers would be, you know, satisfying to me, what would be interesting and where, where, where could I be, actually be the boss. And real estate for a couple of different reasons appealed to me. The most significant of which is my, I have three architects in my family. My mother's brother was an architect, one of the first black architects to have his own firm. He's in Chicago. He was in Chicago. His daughter, my cousin, is an architect. And his nephew, my other cousin, is also an architect. They're all all in Chicago. And our grandfather was basically a general contractor. They called him a carpenter, but he could build anything. And in fact, the second home I grew up in, my uncle and my mother designed together, and I was walking through framing at like eight years old. So I just kind of, you know, was around it. And I guess when I started in my 20s, thinking about, you know, different career options, real estate appealed to me. So while I was working full time at this corporate job, I got, I started working with a real estate broker who selling houses. And I realized pretty quickly that was not the part of real estate that I wanted to do. And I I can't remember how I found out what development was, but when I found out what it was, I was like, okay, that's, that's what I want to do. But then I didn't see a path 
from kind of a, you know, engineering techie background to real estate in terms of I didn't have, I didn't know anybody. I didn't know any developers. And so I saw business school as a route to make that transition. And so I looked two things. I looked for schools. I was living in the Boston area. I looked for schools in California that had real estate in the MBA curriculum. And so USC did, UCLA, Berkeley did, and I applied to all those, but UCLA came up with a little money. So, so I went there and I graduated into a recession and no developers were hiring. Uh, it was if they were surviving, they, they certainly were not hiring newly minted MBAs with no experience in that, in that field. So I ended up going to work for a bank which was, you know, the furthest thing from, you know, I think if you have a developer spirit, <laughs> the banker spirit is like the opposite. So, but anyway, I needed a job. So I went to work for First Chicago, First National Bank of Chicago had a, an LA office. And I was, I spent uh, all my time there reviewing borrower financial condition and trying to figure out, you know, with my you know, with my cohorts, how we could keep the borrowers that we we had. I think I did one new loan in almost three years that was retail in Las Vegas. So it was a tough period to be uh, in the real estate department in a bank. Uh, I learned a lot. You know, there were a lot of, there's a lot of scrutiny. This was 1990. So there's a lot of scrutiny. Banks, because of what had happened with the savings and loan debacle, bank stocks were in the tank. And it just was not a fun time, but it was a good, it was a good learning experience. And I also learned who all of the kind of, you know, premier Southern California developers that survived, one of which was, was KB Home, then called Kaufman and Broad. And they were one of our borrowers. And one of the things that I remember distinctly from, from that time was that they had money, they had cash on their balance sheet. And I didn't realize the significance, except you know that they could be financially healthy. I didn't realize it then uh, until the mid nineties when they basically bought up Central California and Texas and they built you know hundreds and thousands of entry level single family homes and they made a mint. And that's when you know it hit me, it's like, hmm, he or she who has cash in the downturn, you know, can get a lot done. So anyway, so that, so I did, you know, so I was in my, my kind of banking role, which I frankly hated. And I was looking after a couple of years, I was looking for, you know, well, what can I do? And I saw this article in the LA times. It was, there was a real estate section at that time. And on the cover once on, on Sundays, on the cover was an article called The Unlikely Developer. And there was a black woman on the cover and her name is Jackie DuPont Walker. So I tracked her down and she was like, I want to take you to dinner. I, I, don't, I don't understand. What is this thing you're doing? And she had, she had, she worked with her church, Ward AME here in LA to build seniors housing over on Adams near USC. It's about a 130 unit project. It was really beautiful. And so, you know, I was, um, you know, I was inspired and I was interested. And so she, we, she and I started a dialogue and she tried to get me to come. She said, well, I'm going to start another nonprofit. They're going to, it's going to bank land in South Central so that, you know, affordable housing developments can get done. 
and you can be the executive director of that. And I was like, well, I was flattered. I was like, well, that sounds exciting. But then I thought, I was like, let's see. I've never run anything. I don't really know anything about development. And oh, the board is seven preachers. Hmm. That sounds that sounds like maybe it's not the best thing for me. But it, you know, as it turns out, around that same time, there was an ad in the LA Times for a project manager job at a nonprofit called a Community of Friends. And so I, I, you know, called and I went for an interview. And I really liked the executive director. We got along. Uh, well, and he said, well, I, he offered me a job and he said, well, I can't match the bank salary, but I just got this grant and I think, you know, we can get you closer over time. And I, I said, fine. I said, well, you know, I don't like, you know, I don't like being in banking and I want to learn development and I didn't know any better. I didn't know what special needs housing was. So this nonprofit, a community of friends developed permanent housing, so apartments for adults with mental illness. So you not only had to get the development set, um, you had to partner with Department of Mental Health and get services for the residents. And it was permanent housing. It wasn't shelters. It wasn't temporary housing. So basically, the the tenant needed to be able to live on their own with some, some supportive service help. And it was a newish concept. In fact, Community of Friends was founded in 1988, and I went there in 1992, 93. So, you know, we were the organization was still kind of in its infancy. And uh, a couple of years after being there, um, the director that I that hired me left. He he was from the East Coast and his wife was working on her PhD and they moved to New York. And he said, Well, I told the board that you could run the organization. <laughs> and so that was that was an, a, another quite a uh, surprise, but I, I stepped in and I had a really great board and supportive staff. And the the sort of the concept of special needs housing was getting legs then. So this was mid-90s. There were a lot of resources directed at it. There was HUD had some programs, some project-based rental subsidies. The tax credit program, which started in 1986, was just starting to kind of get legs. A lot of, you know, I, I remember literally calling the Treasury Department at, at IBM and saying, hey, you know, I have a development. You want to put tax credits on it? They were like, what? Hey, click. So, so it was, it was kind of, an, you know, looking back, it was an exciting time, both for me and for the industry. And so uh, that's how, so that's how I got it to the nonprofit. It was like totally God's will. I did not go out seeking to be a do-gooder. I was just trying to learn real estate development and I figured, oh, it's just a twist. If I had really understood what it was, I probably would have run screaming, but. Um, right. <laughs> As it is for most of us when we when we don't really think about something fully, but we're just pulled in pulled in that direction. What also strikes me about what you said is that even though you turned down the executive director role in the beginning at that other organization, you still were you still got that leadership role, so you were meant for it. I think that's really funny. You were so <laughs> humble by saying no over here, but then in short order. You're right. You're right. It was, it was, because it was never something that I would have sought out, but it was, it was a great experience for, for me personally. And we got a lot of work done because nobody else in LA 
was doing it. And, you know, there were other affordable housing, nonprofit affordable housing developers, but no one, you know, obviously, you know, sought out mentally ill people to go house mentally ill people, right? So, so, so I say, I say that to say that I didn't have a lot of competition for the resources that were out there and community of friends. And the other thing, because I, of the path that, that it took me to get there, it was really important to me to get other women and minorities into the, the development arena. So, and it's, and for us to, to do the work, to not hire development consultants, to really learn how to put together a tax credit application, how to, how to layer the financing, you know, how do we get these buildings built or renovated? So we, we did, you know, we did the work. And I think, well, that's all I'll say about that for now, except that it was personally important to me to, to, you know, to bring some other folks along as that organization grew. You know, the other thing that I'll say, and just to kind of give you some idea of the growth, when I went to Community of Friends, there were two projects operating. They were both in Hollywood, total about 40 units between the two of them. Because of our our focus, we were not we were not relegated to stay in a neighborhood. We were not a community-based organization because you know who wants to concentrate housing for mentally ill people in any way? It's needed in every community. So we were able to operate uh, actually citywide, countywide, and and did some work in Orange County, and actually founded a, a second nonprofit in San Diego. So we were able to work regionally, which was interesting. And it also was a lesson in the politics of development because there was no point, and and I I learned LA pretty quickly that we have 15 council districts, the council member rules. It's, It's, I call it the fiefdom system, unlike the Chicago area where I came from, where the mayor rules. So if you're a developer in LA of affordable housing, you need to know that that council uh, district, the council person supports your project. And I learned pretty, pretty quickly who did, who didn't, you know, we always had to get variances for something or another. I tried to avoid zoning changes because that introduced the community and that was a whole other issue. So we went from 40 units in say 19, 90 to about a thousand either completed or underway by the time I left 10 years later. So I was, I was all about like getting deals done. Wow. That is uh, that is huge, huge growth. And also really interesting insights about it's always the politics, like you said, the, the zoning and, you know, any, anybody who's ever tried to build or even renovate will probably understand something about variances and, uh, and zoning, but it, it is, it's, it's so complex. I actually have a quick question about this and then would love to dive into GHC and, and like how you moved into affordable housing. My question is around like the, like you said, like the, the, the mental health aspect and, and these people that were living there, because we don't really talk about mental health. There's used to be a lot more stigma around it back then than there is today. It's starting to, to break up. How are those people? I mean, those was, that was permanent housing. So they must have like social, like social services coming to them. Like, is that program still running? And, and is that something that's still like important? Did it gain wider traction? Oh my goodness, yes. So I'm I'm happy to say Community Friends, I think, is in its like 32nd or 33rd year now. 
the the CEO who's there now, Dora uh, Dora Gallo, was my my handpicked successor. So I stayed until 2002. Dora, who had actually, I met Dora, and she worked for at the time Councilman Ridley Thomas as a planning deputy. Yet so I I met her there, and I was really impressed with with her. And so yes, so the work continues. The social service uh, aspect. So in permanent housing. You know, the each building had a case manager assigned. The case manager, typically in the beginning, was definitely not our staff. It was a it was a Department of Mental Health employee or a mental health contract, uh, an agency that contract with Department of Mental Health, and they would do any everything from you know help a tenant figure out you know how to how to access their disability benefits or you know how to get transportation access, how to get meals on wheels. It, it, you know, there was all, there were all sorts of tasks that the service coordinator or case manager did, but, you know, it's <clears throat> from an, an owner operator standpoint, these were kind of the poorest of the poor. These folks were typically on uh, SSI, SSDI, some, their only source was general relief, which was $200 a month. And I think it's still 200, I think it's like $220 a month now in LA. So these are super, super poor people. And one of the things in our, one of the, one of the resources that we were able to secure for our buildings was a project-based rental subsidy. So no matter what their income was, they paid 30%. If it's $200 a month, you know, they pay $66. And the rest of the, you know, the real the rent needed to operate that property was subsidized. And that was a special HUD program specifically for homeless uh, persons. So, yeah, it's it, it, in, in, the, in this, this, this sort of concept of special needs housing and it applies to persons with AIDS there were there was a big push housing opportunities for persons with AIDS and they had similar resources. So the sort of the concept of special needs housing absolutely increased. There are many more. I think most of my peers here who are nonprofit developers are involved in some way now, where basically it was only community of friends and a couple of other nonprofits focusing on that population. Now, that's good and bad because it's kind of a follow the money. You know, the reason there's so many interested now is because there are a lot more resources. So for a company like a community of friends, they're now having to compete with other nonprofit developers for sites, for money, you know, the whole bit. So, but the, the, you know, the bottom line is more housing is getting built for those special needs populations. Right. And so the, like you're saying, like the good side of it, it means that money is being allocated from a state level. I'm assuming this is all state, county, city level. Correct. Actually, the, I don't know if you got, you're familiar, you know, the city of LA passed a bond measure, I think two years ago, HHH, HHH and, and SSS. And one is, you know, for HHH is actually for the housing, for the sticks and bricks, and the other one is for services. So that was a bond measure that the voters are paying for. And that was huge. That was huge to get that uh, pushed. And, you know, affordable housing developers, like every every other sort of group that, you know, they had to, to lobby and, 
and kind of market that. But I think there was more of an acceptance from the voting public just looking at the increase in homelessness in the city. Every uh, level of government in California contributes or has programs, the state level, the city, the county, and most times at Community of Friends, my deals would have money from all three of those agencies. So it's very common. It's not, uh, now they're starting to teach it in business school, but it's definitely not anything I learned in business school at that time. <laughs> right. I don't, yeah, I don't imagine that, that they would. So would it be fair to say that when it comes to affordable housing, the underlying, like a foundation of it is the fact that it is subsidized is at least in development, like state? It's, it's both, both capital okay. and operating subsidies are required to serve, you know, the poorest, uh, the poorest area median income households. You, you just, you know, especially in, you know, it's driven by location. So we're in Los Angeles where the dirt is hugely expensive. The, 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 and there's not that much of that. It's not that much dirt left to just build ground up. Existing buildings are now super expensive and they're full. When I was doing, when I joined Community Friends, there were a lot of vacant brick buildings around LA and you could pick them up for a song. And, you know, I, and we, we availed ourselves to as many of those as we could. But now, and, and even with that, even when land and buildings were cheaper, we needed multiple subsidies and the housing was costing let's say close to, you know, $150,000, $200,000 per unit to develop. That has doubled now, which is, you know, it's absurd, but it's like, well, what are you going to do? Or the, the, the option is not build any. So we have to deal with the, with the real estate environment that we live in. In other parts of our country where, you know, the dirt or isn't so expensive. Properties can get developed on, a, on less per unit basis, but the rents are also less. So, you know, the, the, the sort of average rent. So you still need typically, you know, development and operating subsidies of some type to serve these low income. There, you know, if so, I, one of the resources that is widely used is the low income housing tax credit. Nonprofit developers use it, for-profit developers use it, and I really do think it's the best public-private source that's, that's available to us. And the way it works simplistically is an investor in a tax credit deal is you, you can secure an investor a couple of different ways. There can be a direct investment or there can be an investment from a syndicator, from a, from a, and these tax credit syndicators their role in life is to go out, solicit money from corporations, which are typically banks, because the investor needs to be able to project a need for, you know, to defer, to, to decrease their tax liability for 10 years. So if I'm Bank of America and I invest $10 million in a tax credit deal, I can write off a million dollars of my tax liability for each of the subsequent 10 years. So, you know, it's when I when I think about my syndicator friends and talk to them and ask them, you know, who else besides banks, because in the years that banks aren't doing well, like the recession we had in 2007, 2008, those funds, uh, those funds shrank almost in half. I mean, so there was there were fewer 
there were fewer equity providers. So even if I, as a developer, got an allocation of credits from the state, I had a hard time. I could not find in that time frame an investor who would pay the equity levels that you know I was accustomed to getting. You know, earlier in the two thousands. But you know that said, it's still you know there there still hasn't been kind of a great replacement for the low income housing tax credit program in terms of being able to produce units, especially new units of housing. I think well you know I think there's there's increased interest on the part of companies like Google, like Amazon, who who do have huge profits and and can project likely profitability. But it's it's still you know it seems to me like it's still taking a long time to get more more equity investors into um, the tax credit game. And so, why do you think that is? Is it a, a product of just awareness? Is it you know it, a lot of what you're saying is certain political environments where we are in any given market cycle? What's happening in the broader economy all impact this. But if I'm here, I'm an investor today that says, hey, I want to make money, but I also want to feel good about my investment. And I want to be altruistic in a way that I can. You know, how does that investor you know, insert themselves in the, into this type of project? I think, hmm, I think for, so, so for individual investors, it doesn't really it doesn't really work for the individual. I think there's still kind of like a $25,000 maximum if like you personally wanted to invest. And then you've got to, you still have to have a syndicator that, you know, aggregates those $25,000 chunks. So, so let's set aside, you know, individual people for a minute. So other corporations, other sectors of the economy, I think, well, first of all, to be frank, I think banks, initially got uh, so engaged because they were able to get CRA, Community Revitalization Area, credits. So it was almost a mandate. They, they have to get these CRA credits. There's a number of ways they can get them. But to take, you know, part of their, their money, their corporate money, and invest it with syndicators or directly into a deal gets them CRA credits. So I can't say that the bank's motivation is pure, especially at the beginning. I think for other sectors, it's been, you know, the difficulty has been a combination of not really understanding these types of properties and how they operate. You know, so there's kind of a perception, it's been a negative perception of affordable housing subsidized housing, which are different. I think, I think of subsidized, subsidized is subsidized. All affordable housing is not subsidized housing. But I think, you know, there's just sort of an ignorance about what does it mean to invest in a property that houses low-income households. So I think that's, that's kept some corporations on the sidelines. And then it just comes down to a matter of yield. So when the economy is doing great, if I, you know, have an investment that's going to, you know, yield, you know, seven or eight percent, why should I, why should I, you know, why should I put my money over in this tax credit syndicate where the yield is going to be maybe, you know, five percent or four percent? So there, the, the corporation that chooses to do that has to have 
a mandate of, you know, we want to help, we want to help in society, and we don't mind if we don't make the most yield. I think you have to have those two things. And, and I imagine that's challenging, right? Because at the end of the day, from a pure legal perspective, corporations are designed to, you know, maximize shareholder wealth, right? And so right. you put companies in these positions where you want them to do good, but at the same time, that's not actually what their mandate is. And so it's not, it sounds like you need almost a perfect storm of, you know, political feeling and companies like a Facebook or Google that want to be more altruistic. And then, you know, an economy that says, hey, the discount that you're getting on optimizing yield in this environment isn't so great that you need to turn away from it. Because it sounds like I think we could probably all agree there's a vast need for more affordable housing across the country. It's incredibly undersupplied. And so, you know, what is it in your opinion that that gets us there? With the understanding that I think it'll probably be hard to ever get to a point where we feel like, hey, we have enough affordable housing, but what are the conditions that need to be in place to kind of get us on the on the right track? Well, I mean, there's some things that can be that can be done kind of, you know, sort of tweaks to the infrastructure. So without getting too, too deep into tax credits, there's two types. And you, you may hear the 9% and the 4%. And in short, with 9%, you get more equity, but it's a competitive process. So tax credits are allocated to each state based on the population of that state. So obviously, you know, California has 40 million people. We get, and I, I forget what it is now. Let's say if it's, you know, two, two per person, we get, it, the state gets 80 million in tax credits to allocate. Every year that I have been in this business, 9% uh, 9% credits are oversubscribed. In other words, the state gets five applications for every one that they can allocate credits to. So, you know, if you're the lucky, you know, competitive and it's, 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 it's highly competitive to compete, you basically have to have enough pre-development resources to have site control, either you own the property, you have some, you know, long-term option that you control it, you have to have all of your zoning, planning, architecture done. And if you don't, you don't get the max points and you don't compete well and you're going to lose. So developers, nonprofit, for-profit, it doesn't matter. They have to spend a lot just to play the game. And so if, but if I'm, you know, if I compete well, I get an allocation of 9% credits that translates into a significant amount of equity, maybe, you know, a, a third, up to a third of the total capital need for a deal. On the 4% credits, it's, it's well, traditionally, it has been a non-competitive process. So I want to build, you know, a 100-unit affordable housing property in Fullerton using bonds, using taxes and bonds as the debt. And, and, and so if I get a bond inducement, which is not a competitive process, as long as there's bond capacity, which is another issue. But if I get a bond inducement, then I automatically get 4% credits. Okay, great. So, so I get a little, I get less equity with the 4% credits, but I don't have to compete for them. So, so what, what happens is the 4% isn't a real 4%. I, it's actually, it's based on, I forget what the metric is, but it changes monthly. 
and it's been riding around 3.3%. So one of the legislative uh, things on the table right now is to quote unquote, fix the 4% credit so that you're actually getting, you know, 4%. So like that's a, that's a tweak to a system, but it actually would result in, you know, resources that could produce more housing. The, you know, we've all heard, you know, more of late about, you know, the, the, the term workforce housing. And I think that's both a marketing and political effort. I mean, everybody, you know, we know that, that teachers, policemen, firemen, all those sorts of folks need housing. And that tends to be more palatable to, you know, whoever is hearing it. You know, people can relate to that. It's not, oh, those poor people over there. It's like, oh, well, these are the people that, you know, educate our children and help us in the community. And so, you know, I, I feel I feel like there are more there there are both more resources being directed to workforce housing and, and more acceptance. It just makes it easier to get it done. Does workforce housing oh sorry, Daniel. Does workforce housing come with subsidies as well? Because you're saying it's kind of like this marketing term. So then we start to get into like all these different terms and all these different levels and uh, it's really it's really intricate. So um, well it, it really comes down to who if 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 I'm a developer doing a tax credit deal, the highest income level that I can house are people at 60% area median income. So if I if I if I earn more than that as a household, I can't live in tax credit housing. So frankly, and so so <laughs> that's sort of the top level. You can have all hundred units at sixty percent, and those those a, a pure tax credit deal is typically not subsidized with a rental subsidy. So those are households, they have to pay real rent over what they work at Chick-fil-A or Macy's or whatever, whatever the combination of income, they're paying rent. If I'm, if I'm a developer competing on a 9% application, I'm rewarded for, I get more points if I house lower income households. So you'll see development proposals, tax credit deals with, you know, of the 100 units, okay, 10% are going to be at 30% AMI, 20% are going to be at 50% AMI, and the rest are going to be 70% are going to be at 60% AMI. So you can see, I mean, it gets complex as an operator just to monitor that, and you do have to monitor it. But that's, that's a way for both the developer to compete and for a mix of households to get served. However, now I don't have six, I don't have a hundred units where every household has at least 60% AMI. Now I've got some really, really poor households. So how are they gonna pay the market rent in Fullerton? They either have to go to the housing authority and get a portable voucher from the housing authority, or they or or the developer has to create some self-subsidizing source has to you know include another source in their capital stack which is which basically looks like a subsidy so tax credit deals that have kind of mixed targeting that i'm describing they they operate on the margin you know you know frankly as developer you you you, hopefully you own your, earn your developer fee and you have, you know, you're building your portfolio of hundred unit properties, but they're not big on, they're not big cash flowing properties. 
So, you know, you, you, you have to make some choices, again, based on location, the cost of the land, just the cost to get the development done. It's, it's, it's absolutely going to need capital subsidies in, in Southern California. You, you just can't get around it and serve that low of an income. You know, the other option that, that we've had, and it's been around for a long time, you've heard of 80, have you heard of 80-20 deals? Meaning 80%, uh, uh, 20% of the units are targeted to lower income um, households. And there's a mechanism. So part of the capital stack for that 80-20 deal is some tax exempt debt. And that, you know, in some way, you know, keeps costs down. So I'm not sure, Dan, that I answered your, your question. I mean, it's, you know, there's, there's, there, there, there's legislation to increase the resources. That's, you know, that you, I, we need both that and, and we need to engage more, more sectors of, you know, of the economy in this effort. Yeah, well, well like most social issues, it's complex and complicated, or, or so it seems, right? And I, one thing I'm curious about is, you know, as an affordable housing sponsored developer, right? If we look at all the asset classes that sponsors operating across the country, you know, what percentage of folks like yourself are in the affordable housing space? Like, what is it that you know kind of drives you into that world? Is it circumstance that's where you ended up? Is it something that you know, you otherwise find, you know, gratifying outside of the economics? Like, how, how do you think about all that? I think there are, you know, I don't, you, you caught me off guard on numbers. I don't know how many affordable housing developers there are nationally. There are a lot, both nonprofit and for-profit. And by the way, we, 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 we kind of jump forward, I, you know, in terms of GHC, GHC is a for-profit company. We, we are not, we are definitely not nonprofit. So, you know, Again, when I, when I, my route was, you know, kind of, as I described, I just kind of ended up because I didn't know about it. When I found out about the industry of affordable housing and realized, A, that it could be very lucrative and B, that during the 70s and 80s, a, a lot of, a lot of people, a lot of guys mostly made a whole lot of money off of sub, subsidized housing and, HUD programs. And I was pissed. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, dang, I missed it. And, but then I realized, I'm like, oh, but wait, all of those buildings that were built in the 70s and 80s, they're going to need to be renovated. They're going to turn in ownership. So there's kind of another bite at the apple, kind of from my mercenary developer kind of mindset. But I think, I think that you know, one of the one of the issues sort of with expanding the community of affordable housing developers is there is a constrained resource of these capital subsidies. So while there's more interest and sort of more understanding of how to put these complex deals together, there's still constrained resources at the, you know, you name it, federal, state, city level that kind of limit the amount of work that 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 can be done, whether you're for-profit or non-profit developer. And really the only difference, you know, when I was at Community of Friends, the only difference between me and my affordable housing for-profit, you know, 
sister was that I used the developer fees to fund the organization, to pay people salaries and, you know, pay rent and, you know, those types of things rather than, you know, just spending them on expensive goods. It just didn't, it didn't go into developer fees, didn't go into my pocket. They went into the pocket of the organization. So, you know, but I, I think that there is, you know, there's, there's enough, there's so much work to be done, no matter what city we're in, almost everywhere needs affordable housing. So it's just a matter of trying to figure out how to do it most efficiently in, in the location you're in. So one thing that is somewhat timely is that we're currently working on this affordable housing deal in Chicago. And I know you've kind of taken a look at it. And, you know, that is a deal, you know, run by a, a for-profit sponsor and, 70% of the rental revenues is voucher-based. You know, I think a, a lot of our investors, as we look at that deal, just have questions around not just the political environment, but all of these potential budget deficits that uh, are maybe a result of COVID. Just, is it market-specific in terms of how important is the affordable housing chunk of that budget? And should we expect it to increase or decrease? Or is it something happening at the the federal level, you know, what are expectations from you about how COVID and, you know, local state budgets are going to impact the way groups like this can operate, you know, specifically in the, in the voucher space? Well, that's, uh, that's a great question. You know, the, so every, every year HUD's budget, uh, you know, is, is, is put together, you know, with the federal budget and uh, which comes out beginning of October. And, you know, because of my focus over the last, you know, several years, I'm, I'm, I've been more focused on the, the project-based line item in the HUD budget, which has stayed flat for the most part over, over a, a long, over an 18-year period. It hasn't, it hasn't increased much. It hasn't decreased significantly. But, you know, what I, what I, saw happening on the tenant voucher. So tenant voucher has their own line item in, in the HUD budget. And so what happens is HUD allocates funding, that tenant voucher funding goes to local housing authorities to distribute. And what I was seeing happening is the tenant line item was getting cut. It, you know, maybe not huge, not huge cuts, but it was kind of, you know, being whittled away the, the amount of money that would go to the local housing authorities. I, I don't know the formula, like how, how much each housing authority gets, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it's based on the population of a given city. But it's never enough. And that's why you hear about waiting lists at the house, you know, people in LA, I think LA had like a three-year waiting list at one point where you go apply for a voucher and it could be three years before they called and say, hey, you know, we've got one for you. So, um, you know, the effect of COVID is, I, you know, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a scary thing because it, I'm almost more concerned at our state level. The city level for LA, you know, we have the bond measure. And frankly, I think a lot of that money has been committed to deals. So, you know, once that's done, there's nothing new. And then what happens to, you know, the affordable housing trust fund that the city had, you know, it, it has, you know, for years been trying to really get to a meaningful level. It's probably not going to happen now. And that was filling some gaps or other programs 
at the state certainly will be affected. So it's, you know, so I, I see affordable housing advocates kind of gearing up for a fight, frankly, to hold on to the resources. And then, you know, all of that is overlaid by the fact that we're going to have an administration change. And, you know, frankly, I, I, I relaxed about, you know, five years into my career in terms of does it matter if there's a Democrat or Republican at whatever level? It, I, I, I can honestly say I haven't, I haven't seen it. Where it makes a difference is, is if you get a politician who really doesn't care about affordable housing. I mean, the, who was it that rated the, I forget which of our governors rated the CRA, the Community Reinvestment, uh, not Community, the Community Redevelopment Agencies in California were set up to do affordable housing. Well, many of them didn't because the communities didn't want it. So there were millions of dollars sitting in the coffers of various, usually small towns throughout California. And the governor came and, and, and took those funds. It's probably about, I don't know, 10 years ago. And they got, you know, disseminated for other uses, many of which weren't housing. So I think the deal that we're looking at uh, in Chicago, the tenants, as I understand it, are getting housing choice vouchers, which is a, just another name for, you know, tenant-based vouchers. You know, my feeling is, is that there'll be every effort to kind of maintain r rather than, you know, cut what is there. You know, the difficulty is going to be, is there, any, is there any increase in that line item? And that's where the, that's where we need political will. And frankly, right now we have a HUD secretary who, you know, doesn't know what he's doing. I, I, he's been, you know, virtually silent on this on this very issue. Like this would be the time for him to speak up. But I can say, you know, on the just generally speaking, on in the terms of the level of poverty uh, in this country, there hasn't been the political will to cut the project base because what are you going to do you have seniors housing and family housing so can you m imagine the political outcry if you cut for seniors for poor seniors you're basically throwing grandma on the street that's how we talk about it in our industry that's not going to happen it hasn't happened not likely to happen the vouchers have been a little easier to cut because you know there's not that kind of direct link so i you know, I, I think that's an issue that we just have to watch in our industry. And, and frankly, that, you know, we've got to keep some level of political pressure collectively to make sure that 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 the HUD budget is not slashed in those in those areas. Wow, Monique, it's so complex. I mean, there's so many things that go into it's not just affordable housing. I mean, it's the fabric of society. It's, you know, it's our seniors, it's people with mental health issues, it's people who can't buy food. I kind of get emotional about it because it's just, it's so much. And for you, I mean, we didn't really talk about how you got into GHC, but, but you know, you guys are for-profit developers and you've been doing this for a long time. How, how do you kind of feel or is there like an emotional, like personal component for you with what you're doing and with for what developers are doing in terms of contributing to a level of, you know, decent housing and, and living for people? 
Well, let, just real quick, the way I got the, that I got to GAC is one of my contractors, general contractors who I'd worked with over the years at Community Friends, and we were pretty good friends, told me there was a guy looking for somebody that could run numbers. And I, you know, that's like, well, okay, let me meet him and see what he's looking for and keep him away from my staff because I had been there about eight years. I had groomed a lot of young men and and women in the in, in project management and so and not not only me but my peers uh, my peer CEO and directors and the banks and the tax credit syndicators would come and steal away the staff with higher salaries right so anyway so my thought was let me see meet this guy see what he wants and maybe I can refer him to somebody and I met Greg Perlman and two things he said to me. One, he said that he wanted to be the biggest owner of subsidized housing in the country. And I was like, well, this guy has a vision. And then he said he had a $25 million line of credit, which, which has, <laughs> we laugh about this. I think he was a little overselling, but I'm like, Yeesh. because, you know, while I enjoyed what I was doing, I was, you know, I, I knew I was making a difference in the city of LA. I had great staff, but it, it was just hard, you know, it was like constantly on the wheel for the new, the new deal, the new development deal, you know, the fight with the council office. I mean, there was just always something. And so when I understood what Greg wanted to do and that he had some resources, I'm like, sure, you know, I know somebody that can help you. And, and that he was going to operate on a national platform. So I'm like, wow, I get to take my affordable housing experience. I get to apply it nationally. And, and so that appealed to me and I, and I still get to be doing something good. So that, that appealed to me. And in the beginning, you know, I had, I, I think community friends had developed at least, I don't know, six or seven buildings ground up while I was there. So I liked that, you know, I liked seeing a piece of dirt go from, from that to a building. And Greg said, oh yeah, you know, we can, we can do, yeah, we, we can do some development. Well, you know, after several years in, that wasn't happening. And I'm like, well, Greg, what about development? He's like, Monique, we buy buildings. They're full with people. The rent is paid now. He's like, I don't, you know, I'm not really into the market risk. So, you know, so I kind of drank the Kool-Aid. But I'm like, well, you know, at least we're, we, we actually are preserving. We're taking these buildings that were built in the, in the 70s and the 80s and 80s. And we're, you know, preserving, the, not only just preserving them, but, updating them i think in the early 2000s we were one of the first affordable housing developers to put like movie screening rooms in our in our developments we'd have fitness rooms we'd have movie screening we'd have small uh, offices where there could be wellness visits even though we did not have a special needs population we allied with a management company that had a uh, social service group and there were there were case managers because they had uh, there were a lot of seniors. We initially bought two portfolios that included a lot of senior housing, and we left the management company that the seller had in place, and he had a service program. And so, you know, I was able to kind of continue that work of not only offering an affordable place to live, but also some support services. Maybe 10 years in to... to um, GHC, we got to a level of unit, we think we were up to 10,000 units, and then it made sense for us to self-manage. And as it worked out, that guy whose management company we were using elected to sell his affordable portfolio in total, 
and we took on the management team that had been working with us anyway. So they stayed, they were in Cleveland. So they stayed in Cleveland and they continued to support us. And it was, you know, it was a, it was a pretty smooth transition. So that, you know, so, so I, so I enjoy, you know, being, you know, associated with the company and having close contact now with our, our management team, which also offers services. The other thing that we did maybe 12 years in, Greg created a foundation. So he, he was at dinner, he was in LA. He took some low income kids. We have a couple of properties in LA, not many. And he took some kids, they were all young black men, you know, boys were in their teens, he took them to dinner and he heard their stories and he was touched by their stories. And he's like, wow, these, these, these kids really need help. And so he created a foundation and the first year we offered scholarships. We had um, like said, maybe 10 or 12,000 units across the country. We offered scholarships to any graduating senior who had gotten themselves into any two or four year institution. You know how many applicants we got out of 12,000 units and I don't know how many people there were, nine. We got nine applications. So then the next year we're like, okay, maybe, you know, the word didn't get spread. Let's try again with the managers. And we got a few more, but not, still not a lot. And so then he opened it up to kids that lived, kids that lived in communities where we were operating. And we, we, we partnered with local nonprofits that focus on education. We're like, okay, you identify the kids. We don't care where they're coming from, but they got to be poor. They got to be poor and they've got to have gotten themselves through high school and into college. And, and it, it was the through high school and into college was the help of the local, like Minds Matter um, is one that we work with in LA. So now, uh, flash forward to 2020, well, we would be, if everything else weren't going on, we would be having our uh, five-day session. We did them for five years at UCLA, and then we did one at Loyola Marymount where the kids come for a week to UCLA. They just get kind of an experience of being on campus, taking everything from like, you know, rope climbing classes to we've had, you know, we have different speakers come in and, and talk to the kids. I come in with the guys, with my partners who are all white and talk about, you know, you know, making it in a white man's world. That's the topic of my, of my speech. So we have now 500 kids who are, I think we, we had our first cohort graduate from college two years ago. So now we have 500 kids. We continue to support not full scholarship. They have to, you know, they get other scholarship money, but we support them. We, you know, we mentor them. Now I'm talking, I'm remembering, I haven't called my mentee in a while, but just trying to keep them, you know, so, so it's gone beyond the housing and we're trying to get to the more systemic issues. And, and the other thing, the other, the other motivation that came out of this, we, we own, probably the last sub subsidized housing on the beach in California. So in Venice, there are 250 units of subsidized housing in our, in our, in our Breezes Del Mar property. And they're in, they're in, they're not, there's not one big building. There are, I think, eight different locations, scattered site. 
But when I first joined Greg, he was trying to refinance that. It had this HUD held debt that could not be prepaid. And I mean, the mortgage was down to like almost nothing. And it was a whole fight with the, the when HUD had this, this, I mean, it was just this HUD stupid rule that you couldn't prepay this debt. You had to like ride it out for the 40 years. And you couldn't, there were, there were some other aspects to that, let's just say that were unappealing. And so we wanted out of that debt and we wanted to put new debt on. Well, we went to meet with HUD and the tenants got word of it and they came, the, ten, the tenants, they, they hated, they hated Greg and they hated his partner because they were convinced that he was going to, he was going to kick them out. He was going to tear it down. He was going to build condos or whatever. It was Venice, you know, so you know, no matter what he said, they weren't convinced. But that really was his intent, was to extend the subsidy contract. And so finally, we were able to, 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 to work with HUD to, to pay off that debt, to get the subsidy extended. But in going through that process, you know, I met with the residents and they were, they were really upset. And they were like, well, we've lived here. There's one lady. She's like, well, I've been here 30 years. You know, my mother was here and I'm here. And I'm like, wait a minute. This was not supposed to be multi-generational. How? I mean, it was not supposed, intended to house next generation and next generation. It was intended to help one generation get on its feet and get out and open up the space for another. And it just, you know, it just hit me. It's like, well, they don't there's nowhere else to go. And, you know, they haven't been trained. They obviously don't have the education level that's allowed them to move out of this, you know, poverty situation. So, so part of our always up effort is to kind of end the cycle. How do we end the cycle and get people out of thinking, you know, they were, they really did have ownership of their subsidized housing unit, but the whole idea of, Hey, I'm supposed to move on had been lost years ago. And that's, that's a problem. Wow. You touched on so many, like you said, they're systemic issues. I mean, the fact that you only had nine applications from thousands of people doesn't speak. It just speaks to the fact that they don't, they don't think they can, which is something that's just becoming so evident right now. And what everyone, not everyone, but I think a lot more people than ever before are really fighting to fix um, and it's and it, and it became so I, I'm, a, I'm a reader of the applications. And as we got more over the years and we started partnering with these other um, community based organizations whose mission is education driven, I could tell when I got uh, an application from one of our resident kids who hadn't been supported through one of those programs versus a poor kid in East L.A. who had been supported. It was just, it was a more well-written application. The vision was greater. I mean, there's just, there's just so much work to do. So, you know, so we're, you know, we're doing what we, what we can and, you know, just kind of trying to move, move, you know, move folks along, move society along. Yeah. That's amazing. It's it's just amazing work that you're doing with the developing. And I know for, you know, for us at, at Alpha, there's, we, ha- we all have a very strong social component to us and in terms of giving back. And a lot of the people that are looking at this, this property that we're offering, or it's a portfolio, but, you know, it, it speaks to people on, on a different level. I mean, yes, there's returns. You were in, it's for profit. You got into development. I mean, you can do both. And I feel like 
in affordable housing, and then on top of it, a company like yours that's doing these programs, you can really do so much when you are in a position to, to want to do it. And yes. I just think that's, I think that's beautiful. And it's almost, I'll say it, it's almost our responsibility to do that because we can. Yes. It's just great. It's just so great to hear. And and just really quickly before we wrap up, even the the, the for-profit developer that, that, that we're working with, I mean, they create community and they create, I think it's like coupon programs to support like local businesses. And so to try to create a sense of not ownership in terms of what you were saying, like I own this subsidized property, but just pride of, of living in a, in a beautiful place that, that hopefully helps them get to that next level. So all of this is, is just so amazing. You know, to, to wrap up, we'll always kind of ask all of our guests, you know, what does wealth mean to you? You know, I mean, we've talked about so many things, affordable housing related, but you you got into the developing that, that you wanted to get into, but just, just in general, you know, how, how do you think about wealth and, and building wealth? Um, okay. I had, to, I had to look at my notes. <laughs> I had to put my glasses on, you know, well, first of all, I just want to say that I, I, it, I feel so blessed that I, I don't know how I, how many people, you know, wake up and say they like their jobs. And, I, and I've been able to say that for 30 years. I mean, that's, you know, incredible. And it never, and I never get tired of real estate, even though this is a niche of real estate, I just never, I just never get tired of it. I just think it's always interesting, you know, and in terms of building wealth, you know, I've been very fortunate my entire life. I'm not, I didn't, well, it's funny when my dad, when I was a literal little girl, he had a gas station and he used to come home with, you know, pockets full of cash. So I thought we were rich, you know, and I'm an only child and, and my mom, both parents worked. And so I always had, I never lacked for anything. And my parents, for whatever, whatever reason, they liked to travel and they would take me. So I'd been, you know, Mexico, Canada, Caribbean, you know, by the time I was 10, I've been a lot of places. So I think when I, when I saw that question, I, but, you know, I'm looking at my written response. I, I, I think building wealth is critical in this society that we're living in. You know, maybe if we, you know, I, you know, literally could, wouldn't have to sell seashores. I could just be by the seashore and collect seashells and, eat and life would, you know, you know, be happy. But in this society, especially in Southern California society, you know, we need money, we need resources. And the, the less that we have, the more limiting life can be. And so I, so what do I think is important about building wealth? I think wealth determines where you can live, where you can go, meaning like, go visit. I can't vacation. I can't go see different people in different places, but I don't have any money. And that expose, you know, exposing one to other cultures is, I think, the easiest way to see that people really aren't that different. You know, if you, if you stay in your bubble in South Central or, you know, who knows where corner of Montana, you, you don't see that, you know, there are a lot of ways people are the same. The other thing about wealth is it determines the level of education from public school versus private school. I mean, I don't have any children, but if I did, there's no way if I could avoid sending them to public school in L.A., I would. 
which is sad. I went to public school from kindergarten through eighth grade. And it, and it was great. And it was, I was in a good school system. And of course, my mother worked in that school system. So, I mean, that helped. But, but then, then, because she worked in that school system, she insisted that I go to a Catholic high school in another. So I was bused to a Catholic high school in another town, which I didn't want to do. But it was the best thing because I got a, a, a good, solid education that prepared me for Purdue, which was wild, you know, which is. So I think, you know, if you don't have access to resources you're not going to get the best education and that that frames who you associate with you know the the ivy leagues versus the state school i mean it really i mean there's just so many levels that you know that 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 your your level of wealth or not impacts your health obviously you know what we're seeing with covid you know i get so i get upset with my dad who's 95 and unfortunately he's in Virginia in Hampton Virginia so southern Virginia he's still driving and so and he has my credit card so I can see like where he goes I mean so I can I don't need the thing that you track teens on I got visa I can see where he goes and so you know and he lives kind of in just a calm little neighborhood very you know very basic and so he's you know i see these charges to food lion and save a lot and my reaction is oh my god you're going to the places where the people that had bad insurance or no insurance in the first place are going which please <laughs> but you know it's it's convenient to for him and it's close but yeah i mean wealth or not informs so many things in our society from the level of education to the level of medical care you get to you know just you know being able to do and buy fun stuff so i think it's not it's not the be all and end all i mean health health is way more important than wealth but you know in some way you got to have some wealth to get the health i mean this society has just gotten so out of balance and it really does it really does I think have an impact on potential safety for everybody. So we, we, we've, you know, I, I, I'm, you know, it's hard to see everything that we're going through right now in this society, but it's so necessary because I think the course we were on is it, it, it's going to be so detrimental for everybody. It's like the super wealthy forget the 1%, the 0.1%, you know, they can wall themselves off if they want to, but if the whole society crumbles, that's not going to help them. So anyway, that's my two cents on wealth. <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, profound to say the least. It, it's, it's so important to, to frame it that way. Like you said, it's not the be all and, and end all, but it is a vehicle for achieving a lot of things, you know, first and foremost, education and, and health and safety and opportunities. So yeah, it's, it definitely aligns with, with the way that, that I think about it. So it was really beautifully said. Well, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Monique, thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk to us today and just so, so much information for, for everybody who I'm sure has learned a lot. And I think one of the things that came through the strongest for me was just how much meaning and, and heart is in you and also in, in your company and it, in it 
it just makes me feel so good that there are developers out there that have that. And it's not necessarily the way everyone thinks of developers, but I think you've really shone a different kind of light on what it means to work in affordable housing and and how much of a difference people can make. So thank you so much. Well, you're welcome. My pleasure. And I'm, I'm so enjoyed, you know, the short time that I've been on the board and been able to 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 work with FARC and and you guys and so I, I I want nothing but the best for for Alpha. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're we're going strong. So, <laughs> yeah. So thank you again so much, and uh, we'll talk to you really soon. Yeah. Thanks, Monique. Great okay. episode. All right. You're welcome. All right. You guys yes. want to know where I can find it? <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. All right. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to Real Wealth, Real Health. We hope that you've enjoyed today's episode and found it both informative and insightful. We welcome all your questions and your feedback about today's episode. And especially, we welcome your questions about specific topics that you would like us to cover. So shoot us an email at podcast at alphai.com. And if you have a moment, we really appreciate ratings and reviews as it helps us grow our online community and our interactions with you. And we'll also be linking to a number of relevant articles on topics that we might have touched on during our conversations. Some of them are broad, some of them are technical, but we're always aiming to provide information that helps you better understand the mechanics of building this healthy financial foundation, especially if you're looking to do this with real estate. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.